Hi and welcome to my latest podcast. I'm super excited you're joining me as we go through the Gospel of John and we look at Jesus through the eyes of one of his best friends and we come across some incredible theological gems, some wonderful stories and just this amazing perspective that's really different from the other three Gospel writers. So buckle up and join me, Paul White, as we saunter through the book of John. Good morning, saunterers, and welcome to another saunter. And today we are in a beautiful, beautiful chapter of John where everything is looking great again after the pain and sorrow of the day before. Um, So... uh, we're in chapter 20 today of John's Gospel. I'm going to pray and then we're going to launch in. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible story. We thank you that Jesus is alive and that he is powerful and mighty to save and is working in our lives and is literally with us now. And so, Jesus, we welcome you and we thank you for your incredible victory. Lord, what can we say? Words escape us. You are amazing. Amen. So here we go then. Uh, chapter 20 and verse 1. On the, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it, is, while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were running towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went to their homes. This is incredible, isn't it? And I was just thinking about the the kind of whole drama leading up to this morning. Good morning, Rosemary. And the pain and sorrow which must have been overwhelming the disciples and Mary and all of Jesus' friends. And I was thinking when this this was to be a day like no other The supernatural had broken in and changed everything. The inconceivable had become reality. But before that becomes their reality, if you like, before it dawns on them, they have to face that awful kind of process of waking up on another day. And I wrote this down because it's, it's so true for me at any rate. And I think many others who've experienced grief, the dawning of a new day when we're grieving is a grey and merciless extension of our sorrow. The birds are irritatingly cheerful and the rituals and familiar events of the day bring no joy. 
rather a dull reminder of the absence of the one we love. And so for Mary and the disciples, as they woke up again on that, now the second day, well, it was the third day, wasn't it? Jesus crucified on the Friday. It's now the third day, it's a Sunday morning. And they're waking up with that dull awareness that crashes into our minds, you know, straight away when we recover consciousness after sleep that the one we love is no longer with us and it's painful and it's bleak and <clears throat> so they're just looking forward to another day of coping and kind of managing without Jesus. Good morning Fran and so this is this is just such a incredible story as the gradual realization begins to sink in to Jesus's dearest friends that actually Jesus is alive that he isn't dead and so Mary, bless her, she gets there. Mary has got a special affection for Jesus. He cast out demons from her. He set her free from a life of goodness only knows what. Many people have speculated about her life. We don't really know very much about it. We just know that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. And what that meant to her must have been total liberation. And it must have been like... Ah, the, the term born again would hardly have covered it. It must have felt like the, a, a complete new day. And then for Jesus to be suddenly snatched away, and Jesus was in the prime of life, wasn't he? He was in his early 30s. We, we believe and assume he was healthy and strong. He certainly had quite an itinerary and would often spend the night in prayer and still be fresh and ministering to thousands of people, preaching and teaching and healing. So, uh, yeah snatched away we might say at the at the peak of his life and so Mary goes to the tomb she she's not she wants to continue this grieving process by the tomb and she's they it seems as if they had plans as well to um continue the process of anointing his body and so on and so on Anyway, the different the different Gospels tell the story slightly different, which rather than taking away from it, really just adds to it because we number one, we get different perspectives. But it also gives that authenticity that they didn't all get to, all the disciples didn't all get together and write exactly the same kind of statement about the resurrection. But they they each one remembered it in their own way, in their from their unique perspective. And so Mary sees that Jesus is gone, the stone's been taken away. Now we've talked about this many times in church. The stone they reckon would be about two tons in weight, which is about the weight of a transit van or a Land Rover. That's pretty hefty. I know what Mary thought she was going to do. She wasn't going to be able to move it herself. Anyway, so she sees the stone and um, one of the other gospel writers says it was laying some way off. So it's as if it had been literally catapulted or blasted away from the mouth of the tomb. It wasn't just slightly ajar. Oh, it's moved slightly, but it's actually literally somewhere else. And she ran to get Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Once again, John is doing this thing where he's kind of modestly preserving his anonymity but in such a cute way I think because he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved which is such a privileged thing to be known as and I mean his name John means beloved anyway but it's just such a beautiful thing and so he's still kind of following this little practice he has of keeping his own name out of the story 
but the one whom Jesus loved. And so she goes to Simon and John. She says they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. And so off they go to see what Mary's talking about. And John is modest enough to keep his own name out of the story, but he can't resist adding the bit that he's the faster runner than Peter. And and as they run to the tomb, he leaves Peter behind. And Peter's an older guy and he's kind of, you're going to imagine John sort of pacing it out and getting there first and thinking, oh boy, and looking in and sees the the um he sees the gar the um grave clothes there the linen cloths lying there but he didn't go in and it's like I don't know whether he was just waiting for Peter and they would go in together and make this discovery together. Peter gets there huffing and puffing and and just goes straight in the tomb. Well, we we understand that the the entrance of these tombs are pretty small, maybe about a meter high, so it would have involved getting down maybe almost on all fours, walk and creeping in and your eyes getting used to the light and so on. And as they look, they see, or Peter sees the linen clothes lying there, linen cloths lying there, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. It's interesting that there was no sign of the cloths having been removed by a human hand you know by a human agency someone getting in there and actually releasing Jesus or even Jesus staggering out and then throwing the cloths in after him as he leaves as a sort of yeah good riddance but it's almost as though he dematerialized with the cloths around him and then boom came back into because when we read on in a second he has a physical body so I'm I'm fascinated by the Turin Shroud, uh, the idea that that somehow is that imprint that's on there was caused by the the release of power that went into Jesus's body at that point of resurrection. Um, it would be perfectly conceivable to my mind that that was true. They've done extensive tests on the Turin Shroud and found that it's not a fake, that the blood on it is real blood. It's also pretty ancient. It could be the, you know, the kind of from the age, from the actual era of Jesus's death and resurrection. But there's no way of proving it conclusively. But I think it's just wonderful. I just think it's just absolutely fun that, that that God is kind of left this riddle and for the people who want proof it's like well this isn't going to be proof because the people who want proof are never happy that the proof is legitimate enough interestingly just going back to the different accounts of the resurrection in the gospels there have been people who they I think at least four different lawyers or detectives have written books where they've examine the evidence of the resurrection the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus as the disciples told it and they say absolutely on the basis of the evidence the the resurrection has to be factual and one guy goes to far as to say I've convicted people of crimes with less evidence than the bible the gospel writers actually present us with for the resurrection so it's just incredible isn't it and so i think like the person the skeptic will not believe they just made up their mind they're not going to believe they've adopted a position and it ah uh, i don't know what it takes to turn a skeptic round it's often a face-to-face -face encounter with jesus themselves
Jesus himself for themselves. Um, but this this is um, beyond doubt, according to defence lawyers and people like that who work in that field. This is factual evidence. We have four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection. That is enough to verify it as a factual event. Right. So anyway, here we go. So the discrepancies are good rather than bad. We should see them as a definite plus and helpful rather than destructive. So then Simon Peter comes up huffing and puffing, looks into the tomb, sees the cloth. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Now, John can write that because it was him who saw it. So he can say, yeah, do you know what? The moment I saw that, I believed. And yet there are some of the other disciples who it would seem took a bit more convincing for, for example, Thomas. And we'll see him in just a second. But um, John, it seems, was convinced and he, gosh, this is it. I get it. I get it now. It all makes sense. It's all starting to make sense to me. Um, So then the disciples went back to their home. So hold on. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in he saw and believed for as yet they didn't understand the scripture that he must raise from the rise from the dead then the disciples went back to their homes but mary stood out stood weeping outside the tomb i don't know whether the the two just didn't communicate with mary they were so excited in their own little kind of adventure maybe they were kind of discussing on the way home do you know what i think he's alive i think he's alive john like yeah he's alive he's alive peter do you think he is do you think he is what do you think he's going to say to me john how how is it going to go how are we going to oh how's jesus going to be with us do you think all that kind of stuff maybe was filling their minds that then they didn't even think of poor mary and they leave her there it makes me really sad i think oh come on guys just take a bit of time to to reassure mary give her a hug and say listen Mary, I think he's alive. We're going to see him. I'm sure we're going to see him. And however, we don't know that that didn't happen. It just isn't in the story. So me, I always want to kind of think, what? This is anyway. So Mary stood out, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Someone makes this incredible um, comparison with the Ark of the Covenant, which had, if you remember, the two cherubim, which were a kind of angelic being. <clears throat> they were they were carved out of beaten gold or shaped out of beaten gold, and they sat one at each end of the top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was also made of pure gold. And it was called the mercy seat, which is so interesting that it God's presence that was focused around that box. The the kind of most holy bit of it, if you like, was called the mercy seat is where mercy comes from is God. Mercy flows out from the presence of God and these angels or these cherubim with their wings sort of overarched it their wings overarched that mercy seat and it's interesting isn't it that one at each end of Jesus where Jesus's body had lain on that tomb on that slab of stone which was now like the mercy seat and these angels are sat there kind of 
man, it's powerful, isn't it? And it's a real interesting thought, which I've never thought before. So I'm glad to have seen and read that. That was cool. And so they, they're sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at his head and one at the feet. And they said to a woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, not, oh, my goodness, it's an angel. She just seems to be kind of quite matter of fact, doesn't she? Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they've laid him. And she's her grief is just so deep. She hasn't really, if the disciples did try and say anything to her, she wasn't able to hear it. She's just caught up with this utter grief. And she she's talking to angels, but doesn't seem specially phased by that. And then having said this, she turned around. Come on. Oh my, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know it was Jesus. And do you know what? That has been the experience of so many people in their lives. They've turned around and Jesus is there, but they don't really realise it's Jesus until he kind of releases that word that just touches their heart and suddenly suddenly it makes sense is Jesus and in that moment she, so Jesus says to her woman why are you weeping <laughs> woman why are you weeping he's still just kind of letting her come to isn't he he's letting the realization sink in and then he says, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she says to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Mary said to her, sorry, Jesus said to her, Mary. <laughs> wow. wow. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Don't you just love this stuff? I mean, it's utterly utterly gorgeous there's Jesus standing there and he I bet you he's got a little smile on his face and he's just letting Mary come to the realization she's seen the tomb is empty she hasn't really paid much attention to the angels or the grave clothes which presumably she saw but she's just missing Jesus and she sees this guy she thinks he's the gardener and he and he's smiling there and then he, she, he just says Mary and in that moment of speaking her name it all the lights come on everything makes sense Jesus and she's she's Rabboni which means teacher oh how beautiful what uh probably the single most beautiful piece of the whole bible for me I think is just absolute I just love it because to me it captures the sweetness of Jesus it captures the tenderness of Jesus it captures the intimacy of Mary's love for Jesus she's not a 
career disciple. She's not looking for Jesus to make her great. She just loves him with the simple, pure love of somebody who's been set free from a lifetime of slavery. She loves him because he's her kinsman redeemer, just like in the book of um, uh, Ruth. He's the one who's come to set her free. He was the only one who could liberate her from this prison. And now he's back. (laughs) Come on. Oh, boy. We could get very theological about what Jesus means about ascending to his father and whatnot. But the really cool thing, I think, for us today is that he wants to say to her, but go to my brothers. Go to my. So the disciples. Right. Bear in mind, each one of those disciples ran away. Or denied him, Peter, or betrayed him, Judas, except one whose name was John, who's writing this account for us. And yet Jesus says, go to my brothers. He's not mad at them. He's not going to kind of go around and slap them about. They're his brothers. He's not ashamed, the writer to the Hebrews says, to call us his brothers. I I think it's Hebrews. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Isn't that beautiful? So Mary goes off and announces to his disciples, I've seen the Lord and and all that he'd said to her. So this is so cool. So verse uh, 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So they were still kind of not, not, although they talked about Jesus being risen from Peter and John and and so on, they'd, they'd not really all it seems come to be confident about that fact and they were still hiding away because there was going to almost definitely be a purge and a roundup of all the disciples of Jesus and these guys are thinking man we're so dead when they find us and so they're afraid and so they've got the doors locked and they're in this room and Jesus came and stood among them. It didn't seem that he needed to open the door. He could just appear in the room and he does this and just to say as well that Mary didn't recognize Jesus, probably partly because of her grief, but partly it seems that in his risen body, Jesus could disguise himself somehow or kind of veil his identity somehow, because this happens in other accounts as well, where people don't realize that it's Jesus and then, oh, it is. And they suddenly, their eyes are open and they suddenly see. And I think that's that continues to be true, that Jesus appears to people and they don't always recognise him. And then there's that moment of recognition and surrender, which is utterly beautiful. Right. So Jesus meets with his disciples, his brothers, he calls them and he says, peace be with you. He doesn't say, what happened to you lot? Fine load of friends you are. Absolutely. I'm so disappointed. Do you know what? You really hurt me. He doesn't even go there, does he? But he could have done. He says, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad. I should think they <laughs> were a little bit glad. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then he makes this profound statement, which I have preached on and I will continue to preach on till the day I die. And it is as the father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. He sent me into the world. 
He sent me to lay down my life. He sent me as a son. He sent me as a beloved one, as an anointed one. And even so, I'm sending you as a son, as a daughter, to lay down your life, to give your life for the world. And I've anointed you. And here you go. Receive the Holy Spirit. And verse 22, it says, and when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Wow. Forgiveness is a powerful weapon in our arsenal of spiritual warfare. We can forgive those who've wounded us. We can even, I believe, forgive the the sins of people in high in government office who've brought damage to the nation, maybe damage to us by their decisions. We can do those things. It is powerful and effective as a weapon of warfare. So um, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. Then remember, we said that there was some there's still some kind of idea some tradition that Thomas looked like Jesus and people kind of joked that they were like twins and maybe so. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see that, <laughs> unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. That's such a silly thing, isn't it, to say. <laughs> I always think never say never with Jesus because he'll keep you to it and he'll make you go over that line where you where you do the very thing you said you would never do. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Good morning, Kaz. Good to see you. Jesus said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, I'm sure. I'm sure he didn't even probably need to do it. Maybe he just took Jesus's hands and held them against his chest or his face and kissed him. I'm sure it was more than just, oh, let's have a look in Jesus. Oh, yeah. Oh. It, it was, I'm sure it was an overwhelming kind of, oh, my goodness, Jesus, I'm so glad. Oh, forgive me, forgive me. I'm sure there were a thousand words like that from all the disciples. You know, I'm so sorry, Jesus. I was a complete wimp. I I yeah, I let you down. I'm so sorry. I'm sure there was a bit of that going on from the disciples. And Jesus said to him, have you believed? So Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so I just want to say to you, if you've believed in Jesus, we haven't seen him. You are especially blessed because we've believed and we haven't seen him. And so Jesus is also prophesying about all the literally millions, millions, billions even of people who will come to faith in him without actually physically seeing him first. And verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So John's saying, listen, this is not exhaustive. Don't for one minute think, oh, yeah, Jesus did this. That's what he did. That's the end of it. There are millions of other things that are not in this book. 
verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We owe John the Apostle so much for putting pen to paper and writing this book. And just in the penultimate chapter, we we realise, we understand why John wrote the book. These things are written that you might believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. Listen, you guys, if you have believed in Jesus, you have life in his name. If you have not believed today, please do not put it off. I keep saying this, don't put it off. The very fact that there is breath in your body gives you a chance to say yes to Jesus today. Have an amazing day and Jesus is alive. Don't ever forget it. He is alive and all his promises are good and true and we can take them to the bank. Have an amazing day. Love you guys.